Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Glad to have all of you here. We are in our study of Romans. This is our sixth week that we've been piling into the book of Romans. And for the last four weeks, we have been listening to nothing but bad news. The Apostle Paul gives us the bad news before he gives us the good news. And the bad news was he was trying to prove his point that we need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus Christ. And he gives us a number of reasons why we need the good news. He says we're all under the judgment of God apart from Jesus Christ. And he talks about all people, those who are the immoral people, they are under the judgment of God. Those who are morally superior people without Christ are under the judgment of God. Those who are religious people and who follow all the rules and the regulations, but without Christ, they're under the judgment of God. And those who are the intellectually astute, that like to ask all the questions and find the loopholes, are under the judgment of God. And matter of fact, the Apostle Paul ended chapter 3, verse 20 with this. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Basically, none of us will ever be justified in our own merits, in our own attempts before a holy God, and we're all under his judgment. Now we come to chapter 3, verse 21. If you have your Bibles, open there, because this is considered one of the most significant passages in all of the scripture. This is one of the most important paragraphs in all of the scripture. Matter of fact, we are about to hear the good news and we're about to hear why the good news really is good news. And for the next several weeks, the apostle Paul is going to be teaching us of how this good news is significant over the bad news. Matter of fact, through the course of time, there've been many scholars who've spoken about this passage. Let me give you just a few. Martin Luther says this. This is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Dr. Leon Morris puts it this way. It is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Other scholars says this is the epic center of the gospel. Others have said that this is the center and the heart of the gospel. If there is ever an opportunity to learn why the gospel is so important, these 10 verses are exactly why. And I would say this, if anybody ever comes to you and says, why is the death of Jesus Christ on a cross so important? This is where you go to scripture. This is where you teach them. And this morning, I want to show you what the Apostle Paul says about why this gospel is such incredibly good news, because he is going to pile it on us. Has anyone here ever been to a Brazilian restaurant? A Brazilian restaurant. You know what a Brazilian restaurant is all about. 
I was in one in Africa. It was called a carnivore restaurant. It wasn't Brazilian. It was African. But when I served with the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina as the second vice president one year, all the officers were taken to a Brazilian restaurant in Raleigh. Now, the way it works is this. You have two flags on your table. You send the green flag up, and when the green flag up, man, it is a meat fest. I mean, man, every kind of meat you can imagine. And they come there with this big old hunk of beef, and they slice it off to your taste, and they fill your plate up. And if your flag's up, somebody comes with some pork, and they're slicing it off, and they're putting it in your plate. If your flag's up, somebody comes with some lamb and they put lamb in your plate. If your flag's up, they come with chicken and they put chicken in your plate. Every kind of imaginable meat that we eat here is piled on the plate. And whenever you leave that flag up, they keep piling it and piling it and piling it. Man, I didn't know that you were supposed to stop them. So my plate was just overflowing with meat. Man, when I finished eating that, I was full. As one lady told me, she said, I, she said you were swote. <laughs> I guess that's a fateful word. I don't know. But I was swote after I finished with all of that. And here's what the Apostle Paul does. He is about to pile on gospel delicacies to us. When we get into these verses, he is putting chunks of meat of the gospel that is rich and that is continuing and that is delicious morsels. And the more we read, the more he piles on. So I want to show you six things that he shows us in these verses of why the gospel is so good. And what is it that the gospel brings to us? So we're going to have to fly through these because these six things are some of the most important theological terms that every Christian should understand. And so we're going to look at all of these, okay? So let's begin where he starts. Of the six things that he tells us of the gospel, the first is this. The gospel brings intervention. The gospel brings intervention. You might say, what do you mean? Look at the first part of verse 21. But... Now, but now, here's one of the greatest buts in the Bible. Now, I know some kids are going to be in here saying, oh, he said but, and um, it happens every time. But this is, these are some of the, this is one of the greatest buts in the Bible. It's an adversative. It's changing something from bad news to good news. And the Apostle Paul has just told us for four weeks that how bad the news is. And now all of a sudden he stops and he changes direction. He says, but now. But now things are about to change. You are under the wrath of God, but now you're going to learn about his grace. You were enslaved to sin, but now you're about to figure out how to be free. You were working yourself to the bone trying to earn your righteousness, but now I'm going to show you how to receive the righteousness of Christ. You were doomed to an eternity separated from a holy God. You are about to face his wrath, but now God is going to intervene. He himself is going to step in. He is going to interrupt your world. Everything about your world is about to change. Historically, it's going to be different because it's not only his story, it's going to be your story. Theologically, it's going to be different. You're going to understand what God is doing in your life. Eschatologically, for the future, it's going to be different because you're never going to be the same. And here's the truth. It is God 
who is the one who intervenes in our lives. Every child of God should have a but now moment. Every one of us should. Because we were heading in one direction, God intervenes and steps in, but now things have changed. I remember my life, I was raised in the Catholic church. I went to confession every single Saturday, but I was wild. I did drugs, I did alcohol. All I wanted to do was party and have a good time. So what did I do? As I partied on Friday nights, I went to confession on Saturday afternoons. I sowed wild oats on Friday nights and I prayed for crop failure on Saturday afternoons. That's what I did. And that's how I lived my life. But now, I met a guy by the name of Danny LeBlanc. And Danny invited me to a Baptist church on a Thursday night. I said, who goes to church on Thursday night? He says, anybody that doesn't have a date for Friday night. (laughs) But now, I went with Danny. And I sat down there, and I'm watching all these girls in the back of the choir, and they're looking pretty and everything, and all these people. But now, the preacher starts. And he starts talking about the gospel. And for the first time, I ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And but now, the Holy Spirit began to convict me. And I knew that if I died that night, I would go to hell. And I would be separated from God. But now, I put God to the test. If you really are real, let Jerry Harris walk down there and talk to that pastor. Jerry Harris was the best person I knew. But now, Jerry Harris got up and walked down the aisle. He grabbed a preacher by the hand. And when he left, but now, I went down that aisle. And when I told that preacher, my life, he led me in a prayer. But now, at that moment, the sins were forgiven. I felt a release. But now, I went into that building, a sinner, and I walked out a saint. And but now, I got a date with Cindy Babcock. (laughs) And my life has never been the same because of Jesus. Listen, if you're a child of God, You've got a but now moment because you are heading in a direction contrary to the heart of God and he intervened in your life and he turned things around and those things that were bad news, now he makes them good news in Jesus. And I want to tell you, child of God, you've got a but now, you've got a but now story that you need to tell people about. See, the first thing that happens in the gospel is God himself intervenes. He is not content with us walking towards wrath and destruction. By his own love and his mercy for us, he steps in. And there's this point of intervention that only comes from the mysterious love of a father. So the first thing Paul says is there's intervention. But here's the second thing. The gospel brings justification. Now, this is a big word. This is one of the most important theological terms that you and I can learn. When we come to faith in Christ, we are justified. And a lot of people want to know what that means. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Romans, keep going. But the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. 
Now, this word justification is a confusing word for a lot of people. I grew up in the Catholic Church, as I said, and when I grew up in catechism, we were taught that justification was a process that you had to go through, and you have to fulfill the seven sacraments of the church in order to be counted as righteous. And if you perform the seven sacraments of the church, then you could be justified. But if you didn't do a real good job with it and you die, there was another loophole called purgatory, and you can purge your sins. That's why they call it purgatory, purgatory. And you can go to purgatory until you are considered to be good enough to be classified as righteous. The problem with that is it's not biblical and it doesn't reflect the meaning of the word justified. The word justified is a legal term. It's a legal term that takes place in a court setting. And the best definition is what Wayne Grudem gives. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. It is instantaneous where God sees our sins forgiven, the righteousness of Christ, and God makes a declaration. In other words, justification is not a process, it's a pronouncement by God himself. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that I was accused of a crime, and because of that, I had to go to court, and I was on trial. And I went through this trial, and the jury hears all the evidence, and they decide that I am not guilty. And so they give the verdict, not guilty. The judge reads the verdict, not guilty. And when he pounds that gavel on that table and says, not guilty, at that moment, he pronounces me just. And I'm justified. I walk out immediately. It's not a process. The judge doesn't say, now, here's what we're going to do. Here are seven steps we want you to follow. You meet with the parole board every month, and at the end of a year, if you are meeting these things, we'll consider you just. If not, we'll put you in jail for a time until you pay up. No. And here's what God does, that when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we surrender our life to him at that moment, instantaneously, God says, just acquitted of all crimes. And when you and I have been acquitted of a crime, we can never again be charged for that crime. So Paul says there are three things about justification that we need to understand. I want to go through these really quick. The first thing he tells us is the source of our justification. It's God's grace. It's his grace. Notice how he says it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin literally means missing the mark. It's an archery's term. When people would get in an archery tournament, if they missed the mark, they were called to have sinned. You missed the mark. Every one of us missed the mark. But we fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified by his grace as a gift. Justification you do not earn. Justification you do not buy. It is a gift of God through his grace. So we are counted righteous by his grace. Here's the second thing. The ground of our justification is the cross. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. God operates by two things on his throne, righteousness and justice. 
You go through the pages of scripture in the Old Testament, his righteousness and his justice. Both have to be working together. His righteousness is his holiness and he's doing the right things. His justice is doing what justice requires. But here's what he does. He's righteous and he's just. And then some people will say, well, if, if he forgives sin, then is he just? If he's not righteous, then he cannot be just. And if he's not just, then he cannot be righteous. So how is it that God can make a person righteous who has sin? If justice requires the penalty for sin, and that is death, how is it that God could possibly make a person righteous? Here's how it is. It's the cross. He said it's manifested the, by the cross was manifested in Jesus, but it's nothing new. It was an Old Testament understanding. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a pointing to Jesus of the New Testament. Here's what happened. Every day at the, at the, the once a year, the, the sheep, the, every family would bring a sacrifice on the day of atonement. And they would have to have a perfect lamb. And they would bring this perfect spotless little lamb before the priest. And then the father of the family would come to that lamb and lay his hand on the head of that lamb. That was symbolic that all the sins of the family were going into that lamb. And because the sins went into the lamb, while he did that, the priest would cut the throat of the lamb. And the lamb would bleed out and die for the sins of the family. And so it was a picture of being counted as righteous, but it was temporary because every single year they had to go back and do that. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, what does John the Baptist call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus went to the cross and when he died, he didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. And when he is dying on that cross, he is taking the sins of humanity. And when a person places their faith and trust in Christ, it's as though they're laying their hands on the Lord Jesus. And the sins are transferred to him. And what does God do? In that moment of surrender, God transforms, transfers his righteousness onto us. It's not that we're completely righteous. What he does, he imputes it into us. That means he counts us as righteous. And at that moment, what God sees is the blood of Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ in our lives. And God satisfies both his justice and his righteousness at the same time. And through that act of Jesus' work on the cross, we can be considered by God justified. But then there's a third thing. The means of our justification is our faith. Seven times in his passage, Paul mentions faith, and one time he mentions belief. Let's look at all of them. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Go to the next one. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Go to the next one. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Verse 30. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Here's what it takes. It takes faith. But listen carefully. Faith is not a works. 
Some people will act as though faith is a work. God does his part. He sent Jesus. I do my part. I put my faith in him. No, salvation from beginning to end is God's part. And what we do is we simply trust him. It's not that I have faith in my faith. Faith in faith is nothing. It's the object of the faith that's important. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And so here's the picture. When it comes to justification, I am justified by God's grace in Christ's work on the cross and through my trust in him alone to be righteous. And when that happens, you are justified instantly. Here's the crazy thing about justification. God sees in you when you surrender your life to Christ, the righteousness of Jesus in you, even though you're still a sinner. And one man put it this way, I am simultaneously a saint and a sinner at the same time. But standing before God, what he sees is Jesus. So we see that's important. Justification. Some people say it's just as though I never sinned. And in the eyes of God, when I come to faith in Christ, God has fulfilled his justice and his righteousness through the death of Christ. And he sees me as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's good news. But here's the third thing we see. Not only does it bring intervention, not only does it bring justification, but the gospel brings redemption. Redemption. Here's another theological term that we really need to understand. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 24b. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. Now, the word redemption was a term of transaction. It was something that was used in the marketplace. Justification was a legal term that took place in the courts. Redemption is something that took place in the selling of slaves. Now, this was a culture where people would buy and sell slaves. But there were many Christians who would buy slaves for the purpose of setting them free. And that's the picture of redemption. Redemption means to buy back. It's a person who would buy a slave, pay the full cost for that slave, give that slave a, 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 a recognition that they are owned by the master, but then give them papers to be set free. It was a beautiful picture because the owner paid the full cost and then would set the slave free, no longer to be under slavery. Let me give you another term that we use for redemption. How many of you are old enough to remember the S&H green stamps? Okay, you're aging yourself here. S&H green stamps. For you younger people, you don't know what we're talking about. You get these book of little green stamps and you would put them together in a book. And if you got so many, you got to get something for free. And the manufacturer paid the full cost of that item, but you got to redeem the stamps and you got something for free. How many of you are couponers? How many of you do the coupon thing and, and you collect them and, and not many? Boy, that was a big thing a few years ago. But um, the, the coupons, people would do that. And you know that if you get a coupon for something, you could turn it in, you might get something for free. The manufacturer paid the full price of it. How about gift cards? How many of you give gift cards? How many of you receive gift cards? It's the same thing. The person who buys the gift card pays the full amount. They give you the gift card. And what do you do? You redeem the gift card, whether it's at a store, whether it's at a restaurant, wherever it is, you redeem it. 
There's the picture. The picture is this. Jesus paid the full price on the cross for your freedom. He paid it all. You don't pay anything. He paid it with his blood. He paid it with his life. And when he hung on the cross, he says, I am doing this to redeem you. I'm buying you back from slavery, and then I'm going to set you free. Let me tell you something I read this week that's a little disheartening about gift cards. How many of you ever lost a gift card? Be honest. Even if the person's sitting next to you and they gave it to you. (laughs) How many of you have forgotten about a gift card? You found it sometime later. How many have given your gift card away to somebody? You know what I, I discovered this week? I discovered the amount of money that's lost in gift cards every year in America. And the amount of money is staggering. How much do you think it is? Somebody just shout out a number. How much? Three million, four million. No, no. Almost $2 billion a year. So y'all gonna be digging up your gift cards today, aren't you? But here's the picture. There are way more people than that that have access to freedom in Christ, but they never activate it by coming to him. And he's already done the work. He's already paid the bill. It is already there for freedom. But many people throw it aside, discard it. I'll use it later. I'll think about it another time. And they never activate their faith in Christ to experience the freedom that they can have in him. So there's redemption. But here's another one. It gets even better. There's intervention. There's justification. There's redemption. Now here's this big word, propitiation. This is a very important word when it comes down to the Christian life and for every believer. It's the word propitiation. Now, some of you may have never heard it. You've never said it. So on the count of three, we're all going to say propitiation. You ready? One, two, three. Look at you. You are theologians. (laughs) And the thing is this, this word propitiation is very, very, very significant. I had, I had some other things I was going to look at, but I'm running out of time here this morning. So here, here's what I just want you to know. There's some people who would say that they don't like the word propitiation. They don't like it because some people try to redefine it. There's some people who would say, no, well, let's not call it propitiation. Let's call it expiation. Expiation just simply means the washing away of sin. And, and that's certainly part of what Christ did on the cross, this expiation. But it's way deeper than the wiping away of sin. Propitiation means this, that because of the shedding of blood, God's wrath is satisfied. That Jesus' death on the cross satisfied, appeased his wrath once and for all. And the reason a lot of people, including Christians in the church, don't like the word propitiation is because it makes them think of some pagan tribe out somewhere in the jungles who has this this pagan God that needs to be appeased, so they offer these human sacrifices so this God can be appeased. And people are offended by that. Christians are saying, "We, we are much better than that. That's not God. He's not this angry God that demands human sacrifices. And I would say, you're right. He is a righteous and holy God that demands that justice be satisfied by a perfect sacrifice. And rather than the sacrificing of humanity, he would sacrifice his own son for you and me. 
And the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is not just wiping away sin. It is satisfying the wrath of God. Listen carefully. So that you who trust Christ will never, ever, ever face the wrath of God. Never. Because Jesus faced it for you. And you are free from all of that. There are a lot of liberal people today in churches and theologians and pastors who oppose this whole idea of propitiation. The fact that we would have a God who would require a bloody sacrifice by his son, nailed on a cross, painfully and shamefully displayed for all the world, is something that Christianity should not have. And as a matter of fact, many of them have deconstructed their faith. That's that kind of new phrase that's been going around to the degree that they reject it. I was reading this week of a couple that make up a band called Gunger. It's, his, it's Michael and Lisa Gunger. And they were, grew up in the church and they grew up doing Christian music and they traveled as this contemporary Christian band. But then they began to look at all this and they said, we've deconstructed our faith. Even at one point, we considered ourselves to be atheists, but we've come back to this. And what we've done is we've had to sanitize the message of the gospel. And we no longer believe in the need for the crucifixion. And here's what Michael Gunger wrote. He said, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering his son. If you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, then stop singing. Really. There was another guy who wrote a book many years ago that was very popular. Many people in our church here began to read it, and, 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 and I started reading it, and I decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight heresy on every time I see it. Well, there wasn't one single page of the book that I did not highlight. It was called The Shack. It was written by William P. Young. A lot of people were caught up into the emotionalism of it, but it was heresy through and through. He has recently written another book, The Lies We Believe About God, and he's rejected the notion of the cross. And here's what William P. Young says. Who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in a most painful and abhorrent manner. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge, and rightly so. Better no God at all than this one. Wow. And here's what they miss. God is not some cosmic abuser who wants to torture his son at his delight to see suffering. God is a heavenly father who loves his creatures so much that he would give his son who volunteered and submitted to the father to go to the cross and to be beaten and ridiculed and bleed to death and shed his blood for the remission of our sins so that we can know him as heavenly father and never be under his wrath. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow. No other fount I know than what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that is a significant part because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
That better be Jesus calling. That better be Jesus calling. The gospel brings intervention. The gospel brings justification. The gospel brings redemption. The gospel brings propitiation. The gospel brings a demonstration. Brings a demonstration. What is a demonstration? Listen to what he says. He says, this was to show, to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The whole gospel is a picture of a demonstration. And this demonstration is demonstrating God's goodness and justifying sin. And here's what he says. He says, first of all, this first one gives people a problem. God's righteous because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Does that mean that in the Old Testament, God just winked his eye at sin? He was fickle. He didn't want to pay for sin. No, that's not what it means. When it means that God passed over these sins, it means this, that God saw the people who trusted him. They had faith in him, such as Abraham, like we'll see next week. But when God passed over them, it just simply means he didn't exact his judgment on them yet. He credited them as righteous because his judgment would be passed on the cross. And they in the Old Testament were credited with the righteousness that Jesus would bring on the cross. And then in the present day, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection proves God's receival of his perfect sacrifice and raising him from the dead vindicates everything and validates everything that God has done. And so both in Old Testament and New Testament, the demonstration is God justifies the just through Christ. So there's a perfect picture of a demonstration. And here's the last thing. The gospel brings implications. I'm going to give you two implications that the good news of Jesus brings. Two implications. Here's the first one. The gospel news should humble every one of us. Should humble us. Here's what Paul says in 27, 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Here's what Paul's saying. When we come to understand the nature of the gospel of what God has done for us, that he's intervened in our life, he's justified us, he's redeemed us, he has satisfied the wrath of God, he has demonstrated that what he has done is true and we can trust in it, we should be humbled. There'll be nobody in heaven patting themselves on the back about making it there. Because not one of us deserves to be there. And what we should do is walk in the humility of giving thanks to the grace of God in our lives and to remind ourselves that if it wasn't for his grace, I too would be separated from him for all of eternity. And so what should it do? It should build this humility within me where I constantly give thanks to God for what he has done. There should be no self-righteousness in the Christian life. There should be no arrogance in the Christian life. There should be no boasting on what we have accomplished in the Christian life. There should only be humility because of what he has done for me through Christ, by his grace, in faith. But here's the last thing. 
The gospel news should unite all believers. And I think that this is where we're missing it today in our culture. Paul says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles. Also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And what is the law? That Jesus came and he tore down the wall of hostility between two groups to make them one. We're living in a culture today where we're inundated by identity. Everybody's identity is either in a philosophy or some position that they have or the color of their skin or their heritage or something in the past. But for a child of God, our identity is Christ. And we shouldn't be a a, a black Christian, an Asian Christian, a Hispanic Christian, a Caucasian Christian. We should be, first of all, Christians. And that is what unites us together. Because of the work on the cross that he did for you, he did for me. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It matters not the color of our skin. It matters not the heritage. It matters not maybe the philosophies of our life that may differ. Now, I'm not talking about sinful, godless philosophies. I'm talking about Christian things that bring us together. There should not be racism. You know what we should be in a church? We should be gracist, not racist. Gracist. But we walk by grace for the glory of God. That's what the gospel does. That's the good news. That if you were apart from God in Christ, you are justified and counted as righteous as Jesus, the Son of God. If you are in Christ, you have been redeemed And you have been set free, no longer by the curse of the law, but you are free to live in the abundance of the Spirit. If you are in Christ, Jesus, he has propitiated your sins where the only thing you experience is the grace of God and not the wrath of a holy God. If you are in Christ, he has demonstrated that by the work of his son on the cross. And if you are in Christ, he has reconciled all things to himself. If you're a Christian this morning, you have a but now moment in your life. And you can go back and say, but now, at that point, here's all the things that God has done for me in Christ. And you need to tell that story. You need to point people to this passage and say, let me tell you what Jesus did in the gospel. And you help people to know that and love that. If you're here this morning and you don't have a but now moment, you've been running from God, but God has shown you today how much he loves you and the extent that he would go through on your behalf so you can know him. There's the good news. The great news, the best news that you will ever hear. And so I want to plead with you, if you have not trusted Christ, that you would come to him today in grace alone, through Christ alone, in faith alone, as you surrender your life to him. And you too can have that but now moment that when you get up, and you leave, you 
are counted as righteous. You are forgiven and redeemed. You represent the very nature of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit can live the rest of your days for the glory of God alone. If you've not done that, let me encourage you to do that because that's the best news you will ever have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. I know we covered a lot of theological terms. But Father, I pray today that as we leave here for the believer, we will know the full depth, the height, the width of Christ's love for us. And Father, for those who are without Christ today, I pray that this day they would surrender. They would just give their life to you. And they would trust Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, as their Redeemer, as their friend. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20-21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.